Chapter Fourteen, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen, The Last Winter, Part One. Ordinary people snuggle up to God as a lost leveret in a freezing wilderness might snuggle up to a Siberian tiger. H. G. Wells. One, five men dead. Scott, Wilson, Bowers, Oates, Seaman Evans. Two, nine men gone home. Lieutenant Evans, Simpson, Mears, Taylor, Ponting, Day, Ford, Clissold, Anton. Three, two men landed. Archer, Williamson. Four, thirteen men at Cape Evans for third year. Atkinson, Cherry Garrard. Wright, Debenham, Gran, Nelson, Lashley, Crean, Cairn, Dimitri, Hooper, Williamson, Archer. A quite disproportionately small part of Scott's last expedition was given to Atkinson's account of the last and worst year any of us survivors spent. Someone should have compelled him to write, for he will not do so if he can help it. The problems which presented themselves were unique in the history of Arctic travel. The weather conditions which had to be faced during this last winter were such as had never been met in McMurdo Sound. The sledging personnel had lately undergone journeys, in one case no less than four journeys, of major importance, until they were absolutely worn out. The successful issue of the party was a triumph of good management and good fellowship. The saving clause was that as regards hut, food, heat, clothing, and the domestic life, generally, we were splendidly found. To the north of us, some hundreds of miles away, Campbell's party of six men must be fighting for their lives against these same conditions, or worse, unless indeed they had already perished on their way south. We knew they must be in desperate plight, but probably they were alive. The point in their favour was that they were fresh men. To the south of us, anywhere between us and the Pole, were five men we knew they must be dead. The immediate problem which presented itself was how best to use the resources which were left to us. Our numbers were much reduced. Nine men had gone home before any hint of tragedy reached them. Two men had been landed from the ship. We were thirteen men for this last year. Of these thirteen, it was almost certain that Debenham would be unable to go out sledging again, owing to an injury to his knee. Archer had come to cook and not to sledge, and it was also doubtful about myself. As a matter of fact, our sledging numbers for the last summer totalled eleven, five officers and six men. We were well provided with transport, having the seven mules sent down by the Indian government, which were excellent animals, as well as our original two dog-teams. The additional dogs brought down by the ship were with two exceptions of no real sledging value. Our dog-teams had, however, already travelled some fifteen hundred miles on the barrier alone, not counting the work they had done between Hot Point and Cape Evans, and, though we did not realise it at this time, they were sick of it, and never worked again with that dash which we had come to expect of them. The first thing which we settled about the winter which lay ahead of us was that, so far as possible, everything should go on as usual. The scientific work must, of course, be continued, and there were the dogs and mules to be looked after, a night watch to be kept, and the meteorological observations and auroral notes to be taken, Owing to our reduced numbers, we should need the help of the seamen for this purpose. 
we were also to bring out another volume of the South Polar Times on midwinter day. The importance of not allowing any sense of depression to become a part of the atmosphere of our life was clear to all. This was all the more necessary when, as we shall see, the constant blizzards confined us week after week to our hut. Even when we did get a fine day, we were almost entirely confined to the rocky cape for our exercise and walks. When there was sea ice it was most unsafe. Atkinson was in command. In addition, he and Dimitri took over the care of the dogs. Many of these, both those which had been out sledging and those just arrived, were in a very poor state, and a dog hospital was soon built. At this date we had twenty-four dogs left from the last year, and eleven dogs brought down recently by the ship. Three of the new dogs had already died. Lashley was in charge of the seven mules, which were allotted to seven men for exercise. Nelson was to continue his marine biological work. Wright was to be meteorologist as well as chemist and physicist. Gran was in charge of stores, and would help Wright in the meteorological observations. Debenham was geologist and photographer. I was ordered to take a long rest, but could do the zoological work, the South Polar Times, and keep the official account of the expedition from day to day. Crean was in charge of sledging stores and equipment. Archer was cook. Hooper, our domestic, took over, in addition, the working of the acetylene plant. There was plenty of work for our other two seamen, Keon and Williamson, in the daily life of the camp and in preparations for the sledging season to come. The blizzard which threatened us all the way from Hut Point on May the 1st broke soon after we got in. The ice in North Bay, which had been frozen for some time, was taken out on the first day of this blizzard, with the exception of a small strip running close along the shore. The rest followed the next afternoon, when the wind was still rising, and blew in the gusts up to eighty-nine miles an hour. The curious thing was that all this time the air had been quite clear. This was the second day of the blizzard. The wind continued in violence as the night wore on, and it began to snow, becoming very thick. From 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. the wind was so strong that there was a continuous rattle of sand and stones up against the wall of the hut. The greater part of the time the anemometer head was choked by the drifting snow, and Debenham, whose night watch it was, had a bad time in clearing it at 4 a.m. During the period when it was working it registered a gust of over 91 miles an hour. While it was not working there came a gust which woke most people up, and which was a far more powerful one, making a regular hail of stones against the wall. The next morning the wind was found to be averaging 104 miles an hour when the anemometer on the hill was checked for three minutes. Later it was averaging 78 miles an hour. This blizzard continued to rage all this day and the next, but on May the 6th, which was one of those clear beautiful days when it is hard to believe that it can ever blow again, we could see something of the damage to the sea ice. The centre of the sound was clear of ice, and the open water stretched to the southwest of us as far back as Tent Island. We were to have many worse blizzards during this winter, but this particular blow was important because it came at a critical time in the freezing over of the sea, and once it had been dispersed, the winds of the future never allowed the ice to form again sufficiently thick to withstand the wind forces which obtained. Thus I find in my diary of May the 8th, up to the present we have never considered the possibility of the sea in this neighbourhood, and the sound out to the west of us not freezing over permanently in the winter. But here there is still open water, and it seems quite possible that there may not be any permanent freezing this year, at any rate to the north of Inaccessible Island and this cape. Though North Bay is now frozen over, the ice in it was blown away during the night, and, having been blown back again, 
is now only joined to the ice foot by newly frozen ice. During this winter the ice formed in North Bay was constantly moving away from the ice foot, quite independently of wind. I watched it carefully, as far as it was possible to do so in the dark. Sometimes, at any rate, the southern side of the sea ice moved out not only northwards from the land, but also slightly westwards from the glacier face. To the northeast, the ice was sometimes pressed closely up against the glacier. It seemed that the whole sheet was subject to a screw movement, the origin of which was somewhere out by Inaccessible Island. The result was that we often had a series of leads of newly frozen ice stretching out for some forty yards to an older piece of ice, each lead being of a different age. It was an interesting study in the formation of sea ice, covered at times by very beautiful ice flowers but it was dangerous for the dogs who sometimes did not realise that these leads were not strong enough to bear them. Vida went in one day, but managed to scramble out on the far side. He was induced to return to the land with difficulty, just before the whole sheet of ice upon which he stood floated out to sea. Nugis, Dimitri's good leader, wandered away several times during the winter. Once at any rate he seems to have been carried off on a piece of ice, and to have managed to swim to land, for when he arrived in camp his coat was full of icy slush. Finally he disappeared altogether. All search for him was in vain, and we never found out what had happened. Vida was a short-tempered, strong animal, who must have about doubled his weight since we came in from one ton, and he became quite a house-dog this winter, waiting at the door to be patted by men as they went out, and coming in sometimes during the night watch. But he did not like to be turned out in the morning, and for my part I did not like the job, for he could prove very nasty. We allowed a good many of the dogs to be loose this year, and sometimes when standing quietly upon a rock on the cape, three or four of the dogs passed like shadows in the darkness, busily hunting the ice foot for seals. This was the trouble of giving them their freedom, and I regret to say we found many carcasses of seal and emperor penguins. There was one new dog, Lion, who accompanied me sometimes to the top of the ramp, to see how the ice lay out in the sound. He seemed as interested in it as I was, and while I was using night-glasses he would sit and gaze out over the sea, which according to its age lay white or black at our feet. Of course we had a dog called Peary, and another one called Cook. Peary was killed on the barrier because he would not pull. Cook, however, was still with us, and seemed to have been ostracised by his fellows, a position which in some lopsided way he enjoyed. Loose dogs chased him at sight, and when Cook appeared, and others were about, a regular steeplechase started. He also came up the ramp with me one day. Halfway up he suddenly turned and fled for the hut, as hard as he could go. Three other dogs came round the rocks in full chase, and they all gave the impression of thoroughly enjoying themselves. The question of what ought to be done for the best during the coming sledging season must have been in the minds of all of us. Which of the two missing parties were we to try and find? A winter journey to relieve Campbell and his five men was out of the question. I doubt the possibility of such a journey to Evans Coves with fit men. To us, at any rate, it was unthinkable. Also, if we could do the double journey up and down, Campbell could certainly do the single journey down. Add to this that there was every sign of open water under the western mountains, though this did not influence as much when the decision was made. The problem, as it presented itself to us, was much as follows. Campbell's party might have been picked up by the Terra Nova. Pennell meant to have another try to reach him on his way north, and it was probable that the ship would not be able to communicate again with Cape Evans owing to ice. On the other hand, it was likely that the ship had not been able to relieve him. It also seemed 
that he could not have travelled down the coast at this time owing to the state of the sea ice the danger to him and his men was primarily during the winter every day after the winter his danger was lessened if we started in the end of october to relieve campbell estimating the probable date of arrival of the ship we judged that we could reach him only five or six weeks before the ship relieved him all the same campbell and his men might be alive and having lived through the winter the arrival of help might make the difference between life and death on the other hand we knew that the polar party must be dead they might be anywhere between hut point and the pole drifted over by snow or lying at the bottom of a crevasse which seemed the most likely thing to have happened from the upper glacier depot in eighty five degrees five minutes south to the pole that is the whole distance of the plateau journey we did not know the courses they had steered nor the position of their depots for lieutenant evans who brought back the last return party was invalided home and neither of the seamen who remained of this party knew the courses after the experience of both the supporting parties on their way down the beardmore glacier when we all got into frightfully crevassed areas it was the general opinion that the polar party must have fallen down a crevasse the weight of five men as compared with the four men and three men of the other return parties supported this theory lashley was inclined to think they had had scurvy the true solution never once occurred to us for they had full rations for very much longer period of time than according to their averages to eighty seven degrees thirty two minutes they were likely to be out the first object of the expedition had been the pole if some record was not found their success or failure would for ever remain uncertain was it due not only to the men and their relatives but also to the expedition to ascertain their fate if possible the chance of finding the remains of the southern party did not seem very great at the same time scott was strict about leaving notes at depots and it seemed likely that he would have left some record at the upper glacier depot before starting to descend the beardmore glacier it would be interesting to know whether he did so if we went south we must be prepared to reach this depot farther than that i have explained we could not track him on the other hand if we went south prepared to go to the upper glacier depot the number of sledging men necessary in view of the fact that we had no depots would not allow of our sending a second party to relieve campbell it was with all this in our minds that we sat down one evening in the hut to decide what was to be done the problem was a hard one on the one hand we might go south fail entirely to find any trace of the polar party and while we were fruitlessly travelling all summer campbell's men might die for want of help on the other hand we might go north to find that campbell's men were safe and as a consequence the fate of the polar party and the result of their efforts might remain for ever unknown were we to forsake men who might be alive to look for those whom we knew were dead these were the points put by atkinson to the meeting of the whole party he expressed his own conviction that we should go south and then each member was asked what he thought no one was for going north one member only did not vote for going south and he preferred not to give an opinion considering the complexity of the question i was surprised by this unanimity we prepared for another southern journey it is impossible to express and almost impossible to imagine how difficult it was to make this decision then we knew nothing now we know all and nothing is harder than to realize in the light of facts the doubts which others have experienced in the fog of uncertainty our winter routine worked very smoothly inside the hut we had a good deal more room than we needed but this allowed of certain work being done in its shelter which would otherwise have had to be done outside 
For instance, we cut a hole through the floor of the dark room and sledged in some heavy boulders of Kenyite lava. These were frozen solidly into the rock upon which the hut was built by the simple method of pouring hot water over them, and the pedestal so formed was used by Wright for his pendulum observations. I was able to skin a number of birds in the hut, which incidentally was a very much colder place in consequence of the reduction in our numbers. The wind was most turbulent during this winter. The mean velocity of the wind in miles per hour for the month of May was 24.6 miles per hour, for June 30.9 miles per hour, and for July 29.5 miles per hour. The percentage of hours when the wind was blowing over fresh gale strength, 42 miles per hour on the Beaufort scale, for the month of May was 24.5, for June 35, and for July 33% of the whole. These figures speak for themselves. After May we lived surrounded by an atmosphere of raging winds and blinding drift, and the sea at our door was never allowed to freeze permanently. After the blizzard, in the beginning of May which I have already described, the ice round the point of Cape Evans and that in North Bay formed to a considerable thickness. We put a thermometer screen out upon it, and Atkinson started a fish trap through a hole in it. There was a good deal of competition over this trap. The seamen started a rival one, which was to have been a very large affair, though it narrowed down to a less ambitious business before it was finished. There was a sound of cheering one morning, and Crean came in triumph from his fish-trap with a catch of twenty-five. Atkinson's last catch had numbered one, but the seals had found his fishing-holes. A new hole caught fish until a seal found it. One of these fish, a tremosome, had a parasitic growth over the dorsal sheath. External parasites are not common in the Antarctic, and this was an interesting find. On 1st of June, Dimitri and Hooper went with the team of nine dogs to and from the hut point to see if they could find Nugis, the dog which had left us on our return on May 1st. There was plenty of food for him to pick up there. No trace of him could be found. The party reported a bad running surface, no pressure in the ice, as was the case the former year, but a large open working crack running from Great Razorback to Tent Island. There were big snowdrifts at Hut Point, as indeed was already the case at Cape Evans. During the first days of June we got down into the minus thirties, and our spirits rose as the thermometer dropped. We wanted permanent sea ice. Saturday, June the 8th. The weather changes since the night before last have been, luckily for us, uncommon. Thursday evening a strong northerly wind started with some drift and this increased during the night until it blew over 40 miles an hour, the temperature being minus 22 degrees. A strong wind from the north is rare, and generally is the prelude of a blizzard. This northerly wind fell towards morning, and the day was calm and clear, the temperature falling until it was minus 33 degrees at 4 p.m. The barometer had been abnormally low during the day, being only 28.24 at noon. Then at 8 p.m., with the temperature at minus 36 degrees, this blizzard broke, and at the same time there was a big upward jump of the barometer, which seemed to mark the beginning of the blizzard much more than the thermometer, which did not rise much. The wind during the night was very high, blowing 72 and 66 miles an hour for hours at a time, and has not yet shown any sign of diminishing. Now, after lunch, the hut is straining and creaking, while a shower of stones rattles at intervals against it. The drift is generally very heavy. Sunday, June ninth. The temperature has been higher, about zero, during the day, and the blizzard shows no signs of falling yet. 
the gusts are still of a very high velocity. A large quantity of ice to the north seems to have gone out. At any rate, our narrow strip along the front, which is so valuable to us, will probably be permanent now. Monday, June 10th. A most turbulent day. It is very hard to settle down to do anything, read or write, with such a turmoil outside, the hut shaking until we begin to wonder how long it will stand such winds. Most of the time the wind is averaging about sixty miles an hour, but the gusts are far greater, and at times it seems that something must go. Just before lunch I was racking my brains to write an editorial for the South Polar Times, and had congratulated ourselves on having the sea ice, which is still in North Bay. As we were having lunch Nelson came in and said, The thermometers have gone. All the ice in North Bay has gone. The part immediately next to the shore, which has now been in so long, and which was over two feet thick, we had considered sure to stay. On it has gone out the North Bay thermometer screen with its instruments, which was placed four hundred yards out, the fish trap, some shovels and a sledge with a crowbar. The gusts were exceptionally strong at lunch, and the ice must have gone out very quickly. There was no sign of it afterwards, though it was not drifting much, and we could see some distance. To lose this ice in North Bay is a great disappointment, for it means so much to us here whether we have ice or water at our doors. We are now pretty well confined to the Cape, both for our own exercise and that of the mules, and in the dark it is very rough walking. But if the ice in South Bay were to follow, it would be a calamity, cutting us off entirely from the south and all sledging next year. Let us hope we shall be spared this. This blizzard lasted for eight days. Up till then the longest blizzard we had experienced. It died as it had lived, blowing hard to the last, averaging sixty-eight miles an hour from the south, and then fifty-six miles an hour from the north, finally back to the south, and so to calm. To sit here with no noise of wind whistling in the ventilator, calm and starlight outside, and North Bay freezing over once more, is a very great relief. It is noteworthy that this clearance of the ice, as also that in the beginning of May, coincided roughly with the maximum declination of the moon, and therefore with a run of spring tides. It would be tedious to give any detailed account of the winds and drift which followed night and day. There were few days which did not produce their blizzard, but in contrast the hours of bright starlight were very beautiful. Walking home over the cape in the darkness this afternoon, I saw an eruption of Erebus, which, compared with anything we have seen here before, was very big. It looked as though a great mass of flame shot up some thousands of feet into the air, and, as suddenly as it rose, fell again, rising again to about half the height, and then disappearing. There was then a great column of steam rising from the crater, and probably, so Debenham asserts, it was not a flame which appeared, but the reflection from a big bubble breaking in the crater. Afterwards the smoke cloud stretched away southwards, and we could not see the end of it. End of chapter 14, part 1